Good evening, everyone out there in spooky Barber land. This is your resident spookster, uh, <laughs> Crystal. Sorry, I'm trying to find something new, honestly. But how are you all doing? If you've never listened to an episode before and this is your first one, welcome. We are currently in week two of our murders from around the United States, where I will be talking about three murders a week or at least trying to, hopefully, you know, we don't get sick again. <laughs> and yeah, if you've been listening to us for the longest time, appreciate you. Um, but so today's case is so messed up and so twisted that it is not even fair. But after being imprisoned for some serious BS, there is a silver lining to tonight's story. And, hmm, best part about this one, well, I guess, I don't know, it's true crime, but it's also kind of like a justice story because this has happened to, I know, multiple, like, cases that I've been reading where somebody has been falsely accused of something and served time that they can't get back. Um, so this one is about a man named Nicholas Yaris. Stay tuned. All right, so I told you all that there would be a connection between a Delaware case and a Pennsylvania case. Guess what? This is it. You're welcome. Um, so this case actually starts off and technically is a murder in Delaware, but the story we're following follows a man from Pennsylvania. Let me just preface this by saying, out of all the research I have done, the true murderer of Linda May Craig has not been found, as far as I know. Um, I'm still picking apart the little details here. Um, but as far as I could find... And believe me, I have checked. I have looked up this woman's name. I have looked up, tried to find as many articles as possible. Cannot find anything. So let's just jump right on in. So on December 15th of 1981, Linda Mae Craig was kidnapped from her car in the parking lot of the Tri-State Mall on Route 40. I'm sorry. Route 202 in Delaware. My brain obviously shot back to the Route 40 killer case. My bad. <laughs> um, for those of you that are familiar with or are not familiar with Delaware, so Route 202 is um, kind of a connecting route from Delaware into Pennsylvania, and you can take 202 straight from Wilmington into Pennsylvania. So when I tell you this case literally runs both states, it's like right over the border. Um, anyways, actually, I want to say the Tri-State Mall is now called the Concord Mall. I don't know when it changed, but I'm pretty sure Tri-State Mall is Concord Mall. Yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> um, in the week prior to uh, Linda's kidnapping, she had kind of confided in co-workers and her husband that a man was was watching her and made her feel uncomfortable and really afraid now granted like 
if you were that afraid, I would not have left the, like, the mall regardless without, you know, some type of security. Everyone knows that there is mall security. You know, another coworker could have walked out with her, but I, I don't know why she didn't ask. Hell, I don't even know why her husband didn't drop her off because, I mean, the man called 911 and said, hey, uh, yeah, my, my, my wife got off and it's like a 10 minute drive from her work to here and it's 5:40, and she's well overdue that is exactly how he explained it is he she was well overdue home hmm. on the night of the 15th she was abducted after her shift at a kiosk in the mall and from what i had seen was that um her shoes still trying to figure out how this worked but her shoes were still in the parking lot when um i guess when they went to go look after her husband had called the police at a approximately 7 p.m that's very same evening her 1977 chrysler cordoba God, car people, please don't kill me for that. Uh, was found abandoned at a church in Chichester Township in Pennsylvania. Chichester is literally right off Route 495. I want to say it is exit one. That's what I want to say. Um, <laughs> see, there's exit one or two off 495. I want to say it's exit one. This is what happens when you do cases close to home. You sidetrack, trying to explain geo geographical locations. There. <laughs> Anyways, that was found two hours after she had left her job. Now, the next morning on December 16th, Linda's body was found behind a church in a parking lot less than two miles from her home. She had been raped and murdered, and no one exactly knows where the actual murder and rape took place. Um, I don't think they ever really found that out. So I also want to preface this by saying that as of 2004, um, when Nicholas had... Uh, basically a miracle happened there was still no suspects in her murder um but so a little bit of background of how nicholas is tied to linda craig so basically on december 20th of 1981 this is in chester pennsylvania which mind you chester's a good ways away from where she was murdered. Let me just put it to you that way. Um, this is, I hate to say this, this case is pretty much corrupt cops, corrupt justice system. So I do kind of want to preface that to start this with, uh, traffic man, or sorry, patrolman Benjamin Wright had stopped then 20 year old Nick Nicholas Yaris for a traffic violation. But Yaris was on drugs he was on methamphetamines and an altercation ensued between the two of them where um somehow during this altercation the pistol that belonged to officer wright was discharged um 
obviously he wasn't hit. He wasn't, um, like it went off pretty much in its holster and it shot off straight at the ground is basically what I've gathered from it. But because of that, he was charged with mur attempted murder and kidnapping. Two of many other accounts that he was held in a Delaware County jail in lieu of a hundred thousand dollar bail. Um, <laughs> like where did the kidnapping come from? Like, that's my whole thing. Like this man, there was an altercation at a traffic violation and he somehow got arrested for attempted murder because the officer's gun went off towards the ground, mind you, and kidnapping. Excuse me, where, where in the hell do you get kidnapping out of this? So basically with his arrest, he was placed in solitary confinement in a maximum security wing of the jail. And mind you, he was high on methamphetamines at the time and they basically cold turkeyed him in solitary confinement, which if you know anything about solitary confinement, you're not allowed out like no daylight, no nothing. I think, I think maybe you get an hour of daylight or yard time. Um, I'm not too sure. I'm thinking I've seen too many police documentaries. <laughs> um, while he was in his like intake unit, he had saw like a newspaper that was left in his cell that talked about, um, Linda Craig and her being missing and murdered. And mind you, this man is high as a kite and coming off of some pretty heavy duty shit right there. And he's basically trying any desperate move to get the hell out and go get his fix. So he basically decided that he was going to concoct this random scheme to be released. And in doing so, he told police that he knew who the murderer was and that he, you know, he was willing to cooperate as long as, you know, they would release him. Now, he told police that an acquaintance, another drug buddy that he had, believed had recently died died of a drug overdose had committed the murder sadly this completely backfired because yaris got it wrong and it wasn't his drug buddy who passed away of an overdose it was actually his friend's brother that died of an overdose so clearly that was um yeah no and sadly the person that he had you know tried to blame it on had an airtight alibi um so he was placed back in solitary confinement. So what the police ended up doing, because mind you, he basically just said, oh yeah, he put himself in the investigation, despite there really being nothing connecting the two of them, no evidence, nothing. Police leaked to a motorcycle gang member, like a bunch of members that were like housed in the same unit that he was in, that he was a snitch. And because they did that, they did it designing to break him. So I think they were saying like after about less than a week, he was, you know, he tried to hang himself. He failed. 
you know, they had kept him in the jail hospital in restraints, but Sergeant Gerald Murphy had him returned to maximum security wearing only boxer shorts. He was placed back in his cell. Now, mind you, his cell had a broken window in it and it was January. And you have to think he only had boxers, no clothes, nothing. He was verbally attacked, had urine and water put all over him by the outlaw gang members. And about three days after all of this torture where, you know, he's basically freezing, he's going to say anything he can to get the abuse to stop. He asked to speak with Murphy, hoping again to get clothes and a blanket. Murphy then encouraged Yaris to quote unquote, tell the truth you know, to get him out of like the mess that he's in. And because he was beaten down and weak, he pretty much posed a hypothetical question to the sergeant. Like, what if he was a participant in the crime, but not in the murder? Would that be good enough? Sergeant Murphy took that statement to the investigators. And the next day, Yaris was arrested based on Sergeant Murphy's statement. The attacks from the gang members stopped once they learned that Yaris was charged with murder. And at that point, he got exactly what he wanted. He got a clothes and he got a blanket. Now, to make matters worse, mind you, he's in jail because of a supposed attempted murder on a police officer. While he was in prison... Charles Catalino, who was serving time just for burglary of the home for the then prosecuting DA that was handling Yaris's case, William Ryan. And they went and cut a deal with him that he was to solicit conversations from Yaris in exchange for a dismissal of his expected 20 year sentence for his conviction of burglary of the DA's home. Charles was moved to the cell right beside Yaris, and during that time, keep this in mind, he was allowed conjugal visits with his wife or girlfriend. They were, every article I seem can't seem to get that one right. Was it his wife? Was it his girlfriend? I don't know. But it was specifically arranged by the DA's office as he gave them, quote unquote, progress reports with Yaris. Now, by this point, Yaris has been acquitted of all charges from his altercation with Officer Wright. And on April 17th of 1982, the case went to trial. And after an hour of deliberation, the jury acquitted Yaris. Now, when the verdict was read, Officer Wright had to be restrained with DA Barry Gross after a violent outburst in court yelling, mind you, I can't. I don't know, everything I find hasn't exactly stated what explicitive he used, but it begins with an M and let's face it, we all kind of know. It's M, explicitive. You'll never leave this county alive. Now, mind you, this isn't the first time DA Barry Gross had made at a public like outburst like that. He did it again after losing another trial in 1987. 
I didn't go and look at the details for that case, just in case any of you are wondering. Um, County deputies had to then also restrain the DA because he spat in Yaris's face. Now, I'm sorry, your district attorney spits in a man's face and yells that he's never going to leave this county alive. Um, how is that man not in trouble in the courts for doing something like that? I mean, I'm pretty sure that would, uh, <laughs> that would cause some kind of outcry right now. On June 5th in 1982, at the suppression hearing for the murder charges, Yaris had then learned that his case had been taken over by guess who? D.A. Barry Gross. He had also learned that although the facts of the case had not changed, the prosecution was now seeking the death penalty instead of second-degree murder. Yaris began his rapid descent into the judicial system from which he barely escaped. And we're talking like, this man went through hell for a crime he didn't commit. So apparently the prosecutor's only evidence that they submitted, let me, let me make that clear, that they submitted was a semen sample left by the killer in and on the victim. Now, hmm, this is how shady this whole thing is, is tests were run for blood grouping, sub blood grouping, and secretor status. The test shows that the secretor was a B plus blood group member who was also a B plus secretor, which for those of you that don't know is blood antigens that are secreted in his biological fluids. Uh, statistics that it shows show about 15% of the male's population are B plus secretors, but the prosecution did not do other testing on the semen, such as paternity identification, which is more accurately established and could eliminate, you know, people in this case. And the reason that they didn't do any more testing is because the victim's husband's blood type was B plus. B, I keep saying B plus, but it's B positive. Kind of awkward, you know, B positive. Yeah. Okay. We're not going to go there. <laughs> and because of this, and also because the husband's basically made a statement saying oh yeah no me and my wife had sex the other night before she went missing so obviously my stuff would be in her because we can't have children um but now mind you like he said all that and then recanted it once he realized that um you know Yaris was a suspect and he was like oh no 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 we we used a condom that night after clearly stating oh no we can't have kids so we don't use them so he also helped set up this man, like pure bullshit. On June 27th, 1982, the jury was selected and the trial began under Judge Robert F. Kelly. The prosecution refused to hand over more than 20 pages of the homicide file. Also, roughly 50 paragraphs had been deleted from the pages that were given to the defense counsel. Samuel Stratton at the time. Even though Stratton tried and failed to get the homicide files, the judge refused to order the prosecution to comply with the rules of evidence regarding discovery. Basically, what that means is that the prosecution didn't want to hand jack shit over. And in doing so, basically, it was just like, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to give you jack shit. Good luck. Um, 
Because again, they had nothing on Yaris. Nothing. So it stated that the missing files contain evidence of conflicting witness accounts. Um, some of the witnesses' earlier statements and identifications conflicted with later accounts. And what was not known at the, to the defense at the time of this was the fi withheld files contained slide evidence of gloves that were worn during the murder and had been left in the car. Yes. Remember when I said the only, you know, keep in mind the only evidence that was handed in was this, the semen? Yeah, because guess what? They did, they had more shit. But guess what? If they got it tested, oh, Mr. Yaris's handprints and fingerprints and shit wouldn't have been in it? Is that what you're, you're basically trying to say? Hmm. Innocent man goes to jail, framing, frame job. That's what I think. But anyways... Um, Stratton did become aware of this and he did ask for a sidebar conference with Judge Kelly and DA Gross. Um, he told the judge that allowing the slides would only serve to inflame the jury. Uh, Gross countered saying that the slide just shows a pair of gloves worn by the killer and implied that the jury would surmise the reason the investigators didn't have Yaris's prints was because he wore them during the crime that just doesn't make any sense to me. So you're basically saying that the jury would think, oh, they don't have prints because he, you know, he wore those gloves. That's why there's no prints. There's still evidence inside the gloves. Just, just saying. But again, the prosecution should have by law presented this stuff during the trial. And they didn't. Which, let's face it, the DA is kind of a dick. Well, again, our buddy Charles comes back in and he testified against Yaris, sharing, quote unquote, what he heard Yaris say in the Chester County Jail that they were in. He did perjure himself several times with, you know, the prosecution help leading him in questioning. Uh, Charles said that he had not made a deal for his testimony, which later revealed that, hey, guess what? He had called Gross the night before the testimony, demanding and receiving a written promise, written promise from the prosecutor that, you know, he would get out. So dumbass DA was like, oh yeah, here, I'll give you written notice, just proving that, you know, I did do this and yeah, dumbass. But since that had been received and they noted that, that, you know, hey, this dude perjured himself, Charles found himself receiving a concurrent sentence with the one that he was presently serving, but the new sentence would not exceed the four to 10 years that he had yet to serve on his current charges. So basically, the man lied on, sta on stage. This is probably the only justifiable thing that I, I've read during this case was that the man who tried to make up a lie got caught and he got more time. Not really, but he got an extra charge added to him. So this is the sucky part. Five days after the trial began, which basically the trial was literally three days long, uh, Nicholas Yaris was found guilty of the murder of Linda Mae Craig. And on January 24th, 1983, he was sentenced to death and received an additional 30 to 60 years. Talk about some bullshit. 
And now on to the wonders of the appeal process. And let me tell you, this case made me so furious. I, I can't tell you how angry I was at this whole thing. So after Yaris had received his death sentence, he fired Stratton and was assigned, hear me out, a court assigned a defender, Joseph, well, two defenders, Joseph Bullen and Spiros Angelos. Now, the case was remanded to trial for hearings of the destruction of evidence and withheld files. Um, but go figure, one of his defenders tried to convince Yaris to waive his appeals and have the state convert the sentence to life imprisonment. Now, Yaris refused this, but in, and what I've noticed is said, like one of the articles said that it was ironic given the usual parole guidelines of the state of Pennsylvania, Yaris would have probably been released on parole by the time of all of this crap going down. But in February of 1985, while en route to his hearing of destruction of evidence, he escaped. <laughs> Yaris managed to slip out of the custody of the deputies that were transporting him and... With him doing so, prosecutors saw it and were granted the dismissal of the hearing of the destruction of, you know, case files, which kind of, that kind of sucks. But I think he kind of already knew that, like, going, they were just going to say, oh, oh, well, t t sorry about your luck. Um, he was, however, they say captured, but there is actually a site and I can't. I found the articles like archived where Nicholas Yaris actually has his own site and reading up on it, he literally just gets like, he wrote out his whole life, his whole story, like this whole situation. And one article said he was caught. The other one said he like him, he, him himself said he turned himself in, in Florida. Um, and the, the but the appeal was heard in this Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And in October, the sentence and his conviction were affirmed. In doing so, the court reversed eight of its own rulings regarding procedures in capital cases. Um, basically, it just seemed like they, they were like, oh, yeah, no, we're just going to disregard the law. It's kind of how this whole case seems to be going is that, oh, we're just going to have a disregard for any and all information. But... Da, da, da. Yaris did end up reading an article um, about DNA testing. Uh, he read the article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and on March 20th, 1988, he became the first inmate in U.S. history to ask to be allowed to use DNA evidence or DNA testing to prove his innocence. Now, this is where it becomes a long, slippery slope for him. Because this evidence, like the DNA testing, basically, to sum it up, the courts don't want to hear it. They do everything they can, including his defend, like his defenders. They literally, he talked to his um, defense lawyer, Mr. Bullen, and Bullen felt that there would be no problem in having the evidence of the case tested. However, investigating the possibility... Bullen discovered that instead of the evidence being available for testing, somehow all the evidence in the case had been discarded and that none of the autopsy material was left except for two stained st slides that were suitable for testing. Um, how does case material and evidence just go 
um, discarded. I thought like they kept that stuff for quite a while, at least until whatever happens happens. Like with the person in, th I don't, I don't get it. I really don't understand this. Um, the court allowed the the two slides to be sent to Cellmark Diagnostics in Maryland, just because they wanted to. They basically wanted to say like the slides were were useless and. On August 20th of 1988, Selmark did confirm that the slides could not be used. Now, here's where yet again this man goes out of his way in, in prison, mind you, to try to clear his damn name. Um, he re-examined the trial transcripts and discovered that several slides of evidence had been sent to the National Medical Associates in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. And... He wrote to the lab's director, Dr. Vincent Cordova, to ask for, you know, ask about the evidence, ask if, you know, they still had it. Dr. Cordova then personally responded, stating that the coroner had not requested the samples be returned and that they did indeed have two similar slides to the one sent to Selmark. Now, Yaris didn't want to inform his lawyer about this no development, but he did and asked that Mr. Bullen not tell the prosecution about them until he was able to attain approval from the courts to use a new and improved DNA testing technique called PCR. Sadly, douchebag lawyer um, <laughs> disregarded his request and informed the prosecution about the two slides Cordova had. And guess what the prosecution did? They sent two detectives with no court supervision and no court order to retrieve the slides from Cordova. They took the slides under the pretense that they were being trans transported to Selmark. Now, they never made it to Selmark. They basically did a disappearing act. They didn't even arrive at the coroner's office. They were left in the personal possession of Detective John Davison of the CID. Now, you anyone that knows anything about DNA evidence, you have to keep it at a certain temperature, or else it, it can it, it it's biological evidence. It, it can degrade. Anything can happen to it. It has to be in a climate controlled vault. And guess what? Detective Davidson kept them in his possession for two years. Now, mind you, Yaris had been fighting to have a court order to have them turned over to the coroner. No, guess what? Court refused to order Davison to hand over the evidence slides to the coroner's office. So because Yaris was betrayed by his lawyer, he fired him too. So then the coroner appointed yet another guy named Scott Galloway. Galloway was court ordered to present the documentation and expert testimony if he wanted the court to allow PCR enhanced testing and the funds to pay for it. So basically... He had to show proof that it was going to work. Again, and we're talking, I mean, this poor man went through years of abuse in the system of trying to get his case heard. And in June of 1989, Yaris had filed a motion for a new trial based on his discovery of the glove evidence, withholding information regarding said glove and for the improper introduction of the evidence into trial. Yaris initially filed the motion himself because, and it, it went unheard. They, the courts didn't want to hear it. Yarist asked Galloway to file the motion and Galloway refused, saying he did not want to alienate the judge who assigned him the case. Yarist eventually filed a motion to the PA Supreme Court 
forcing the judge to hear the motion of a new trial. The Delaware County District Attorney convinced the Supreme Court to dismiss dismiss the attempt, saying Yaris was attempting to represent himself while being represented by a court-appointed attorney. Now, this man has gone through, again, so much. Yaris filed a complaint about Judge Justice Toll with the Judicial Review Board. The board contacted Galloway, who told the board that Toll was doing everything he could to hear the motion, and in fact, had scheduled a hearing Guess what? Toll never freaking scheduled anything. So Yaris filed a writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. District Court seeking federal court to intercede on his behalf in the state courts to hear the issues relating to the motion for a new trial. And Yaris filed this himself as Galloway, again, refused to help his client. Between 1989 and 1991, Justice Toll quote-unquote, entertained Galloway's attempts to file the super qualifications that he had originally demanded before allowing the PCR-enhanced testing. Toll was trying to establish the exhaustive detail of the lab's expertise in testing evidence in such condition. The final condition was that the lab director had to promise to come across the country and testify at his own expense in hopes that then he might be able to do the testing. Since the requirement of the court, basically that was concocted by the prosecution, did exactly what it was designed to do, it stopped the testing and put up a barrier that really only luck could overcome. Now, mind you, the federal court dismissed Yaris's right. He appealed, but this time, Delaware County District's Attorney's Office wrote to the federal judge overseeing the case and assured him that he would grant Yaris the appeal he sought by granting his demand for the DNA testing. They argued that the federal court should relinquish the jurisdiction back to the state. Sadly, they were convinced and dismissed the the writ of habeas corpus of Nicholas Yaris. Now, unbeknownst to the federal judge was that the redress was a sham the prosecution decided it had Yaris in a position where he could no longer argue as they were granting him what he wanted, the PCR-enhanced testing. They forced Yaris to accept the use of a state police laboratory in Alabama. Mind you, this lab had no experience with any PCR testing. Um, And guess what? The district attorneys also... You know, the wonderful super qualification that everyone had to have. It was gone. Of course it was gone. They got to pick the lab for the testing. They got to literally have this lab in their pocket. The federal judge also didn't know that the prosecution did not plan to abide by any of the test results that would clear them. So even if it would have said, you know, we have the DNA match for somebody else, prosecution didn't give two shits. They had who they wanted some drugged up addict and they didn't have to go actually do their job and find the real killer because no, we have a druggie who admitted to it while he was coming down off of a high an intense come down oh and he was being threatened so you know who cares that's all we need right so hmm here's this the surprising thing well i can't really say surprising because it's really not the alabama state police lab said they had inconclusive results from their testing. Only a difference is, is no one wrote a report. 
There is no report stating what efforts were made to get results, what steps were taken to overcome the staining of the slides, and what sort of testing was done, what results were obtained, uh, were the results certain, could they be interpreted, and were they open to interpretation. But again, there's no report of this. So because there's no report of this, this poor man, nope, stuck again with a big F you to him from the, st from the state. Now, on May 6th of 1994, Yaris was pretty much brought in front of Judge Toll, the man who's pretty much made this dude's life a living hell, and he was trying to argue his motion for a new case, uh, well, a new trial. Yaris laid forth pretty much every supporting fact from the discovery of the gloves in the case. Um, and basically prosecution only attempted to mitigate the argument was that to suggest that the gloves, unlike the DNA prints taken from the semen recovered, could hardly be definitive proof. Basically, they redacted on what they said previously, because previously they were, they pretty much said, we have no idea whose gloves these are, um, you know, that was the argument that they used in the federal court of appeals. Um, this argument had no regard for the fact that throughout the five years that Yaris sought to have all the evidence tested, prosecution withheld the gloves and only the gloves from this effort. And now that they were basically suggesting the gloves had no identification value to them at all, like, oh, you, you can't get anything off of the gloves. You just can't. Even though originally they didn't even want to put the gloves into evidence. So clearly something, they clearly you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And they knew that. At this hearing... Um, prosecution brought in what they claimed was the complete collection of evidence from the case. Uh, Yaris wanted to examine the evidence. I mean, can you blame him? Prosecution was basically just saying, here, this is the, here, just read through the cases. They were kind of hoping it would shut them up and keep them out of everything. Um, I guess they were feeling that, you know, this would make up for them withholding the evidence in the past. Um, Yaris saw that the evidence seal on the envelope had been broken and asked who was responsible. Prosecution stated to Yaris, quote, look, do you want to see the evidence or not? Yaris decided that he was going to forgo the charade about the evidence being made available and just move on from him. Um, Judge Toll, pretty much without contemplating any pretty much anything that was in front of him, like literally everything that was presented to him, denied Yaris's request for relief. Um, there was no statement as to why or the reason the request was denied. It was just stamped with a big red denial. Less than about a week later, Toll issued a written opinion of his rationale for denying relief to Mr. Yaris. And it stated that the judge exposited or exposited yeah whatever <laughs> to rationale for his denial and cited no law to support any findings being supported by law in fact except for the briefest mention in passing at the end of the opinion told did not discuss the gloves or the facts presented by yaris in terms of legality or pro prior or pro 
Yeah, I cannot talk tonight. Propriety. So basically, he didn't acknowledge the gloves. He didn't acknowledge any of the evidence that was put forth in front of him. And basically was just like, you know what? I don't really care. And that's kind of how this whole trial seems to be. It's just, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And it's it's not right. It's really not. There's no evidence holding this man, but yet this man's on death row for no damn reason. Basically, for several years, Yaris had been fighting the federal courts to investigate the abuse of the state court regarding his case. Supreme Court of the state of Pennsylvania denied his post-conviction appeals without a fair hearing to present any witnesses, evidence, or experts. Um, his petition for appeal was denied on May 21st of 1999 on the basis of, quote-unquote, timeliness to comply with a new law that had taken effect a month after the appeal was denied. Um, basically, Yaris, they're trying to say that he didn't make any appeals in time, like in a timely manner, but yet it, it, hmm, he was making appeals during this time frame. And the state of Pennsylvania did not consider that action as a part of a pursuant of relief. Um, the fuck? Now, I'm just going to fast forward. Dr. Tahir joined Dr. Edward Blake in his lab at the Forensic Science Association in California to assist with DNA testing of any of the remaining evidence. It was hopeful that there was enough remaining evidence to have a conclusive PCR enhancement test result. And, um, yeah, there is a bit of a silver lining in all of this. This man's proven his innocence. He's went through hell and the justice system did him wrong. Luckily, there was um there was proof that it was that it was somebody else the testing ended up getting done and nicholas yarrow was finally allowed to be free 17 years i think is what it was 17 years after his day of arrest he was finally able to walk a free man now the more interesting part is that there is actually a witness um and it, it wasn't revealed because you know i mean the man the man was high he didn't know he even had a freaking alibi at the time but on his possessions the night of his arrest there was a receipt that placed him more than 20 miles away from the crime from like any of it and an eyewitness, he was in a, in a store that was in his neighborhood. Miss Mary Terraboli had saw him in her, in her store at 5.30 p.m. that night at the time when the crime was being committed. How can you be in two places at one time? That's the biggest question. Like, this man had proof in his pocket 
but because he was already he was arrested a few days later on a stupid you know altercation high altercation with a cop he got the shitty end of a stick and his way of trying to get out kind of screwed him over in the end but the best part about it is I did go to his website and I did a lot of I did a little reading through his thing and he is writing a book um and he's trying to create and implement prison reform and social programs on his site um but he basically realized that nothing was going to be nothing was going to happen um he was able in December of 2003 prosecution the prosecutor dropped the case basically in a way that if he messed up even the slightest tiniest bit and they feel like they could have fabricated a case against him they would and they could and they could easily just arrest him for no reason um so basically he was living with a gun at his head at all times so from what else i was reading is that basically the prosecution used pretty much every petty tactic that they could find um to drag out him getting released they tormented his family um to try to do a phony attempt to reinvestigate the murder case um they assigned an ex-patrol partner of benny wright to reopen the linda may craig case and they try to rip his family apart before a grand jury and from what i've gathered out of all of this because i mean this was still going in from what i've been reading he has read on his life but as the last thing I could see that he wrote, which was, this was back in July of 2005, um, he wrote on his site, nickyaris.com, even as late as June 2004, the prosecutor was still trying to pin this murder on me by bullying my 80-year-old uncle and cousin, who was a mere teen in 1981 when this crime happened, into taking DNA from my cousin in the hope of pinning the murder on him to then put me back on death row. My response was to get a bullhorn and hand out leaflets to citizens going into and out of the courthouse in Delaware County, PA, every week until they promised to catch him. Since I escaped from death row and was convicted of a third felony in my adult life, I was subject to the USA's three-strike laws. That would allow me to be put away for life if I was to be arrested for any minor thing in the United States. Now that came directly from his page. Could you imagine having that over your, like, just hanging over your head? Traffic violation. Oh, you're Nicholas Yaris? You're under arrest. And back on death row? Like, I couldn't imagine that kind of fear. But there is a bright light at the end of this because he said, F the US and left and went to the UK where he is now living and has apparently lived since roughly around 2005 got married uh he does have a child he has a girl and he's pretty much happy where he's at he again like I said he's he's doing what he can to try to help others because let's face it he's not the only person that has sat on death row for lord knows how long that was actually innocent 
Um, I know there was a case, I want to say last summer, where a guy was um, released after spending a couple decades on death row, literally about to be executed. And they were like, oh, no, this is the wrong man. Like, I don't know. It really does bother me. But I will say this from what um, I did gather from another website, which actually is has the whole case file of Yaris versus Delaware County. Um, and it was filed in February 25th of 2005. And it basically, it brings forth the claims. Um, he spent 22 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit because the county, its prosecutors, and its detectives obscured evidence pointing to the actual killer. They manufactured evidence and thwarted Yaris's demands for DNA testing. And that's kind of where they're like, okay, he, I want to say, I think these, the settlement was like $5 million for, I guess, rep, um, not reprimand, but, uh, sorry, we effed up your life. Here's $5 million to start over kind of thing. <laughs> I don't really know what the actual word for that is, which kind of sucks, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. It's basically like, okay, we're being forced to give you this money. That's kind of how they're, they're, they're probably looking at it. We're being forced to give you this money because we couldn't pin this murder on you. Sorry. So that's it for tonight. So sorry this is coming out so late and like days late. I promise you'll have another episode tomorrow. Um, actually, no, you know what? I'm going to hold off on tomorrow's episode and actually put it out on Sunday just because it will close out the PA cases, but it will also start up the next week's cases for New Jersey. And on that note, we will actually be talking, I'll give you guys a little preview. We will be talking about the, I want to call him the doctor death, but he wasn't a doctor death. It's more like nurse of death. His name is Charles Edmund Cullen. And if you don't know much about him, I suggest doing a little bit of looky up before uh, Sunday. If not, you can always come back here and we will let you know all about him on Sunday. So that is it for me tonight. I am so sorry that I am getting so sporadically out of my way lately. But you know what? Screw it. I'm, I'm not going to edit out my flaws because you know what? I am not perfect. No one is. <laughs> So I will talk to you all on Sunday or whenever you're actually listening to this. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys next time. Stay spooky.